0: You had the, the one minute pitches at the very end, um, which I find great because you, you learn as much in one minute as you do in an hour sometimes.
1: Hello, Matthew Grant here, one of the partners at Instech London. In this episode, I caught up with another well-known industry figure, Adrian Jones from reinsurer Score, who was over in London recently. Now, Adrian's day job is deputy CEO of and C partners and he's in charge of ventures and strategic partnerships. But Adrian is also well known as a commentator on insurance innovation and future trends. We had a great discussion about a whole range of topics including the types of companies the SCORE looks to invest in and the tension that insurers have between investing for benefits for the core business but also looking for commercial returns as a strategic investor. Adrian is also on the board of B3i and he gives a perspective on how the consortium is getting on and a hint about something is coming soon with their pilot study to be announced later this year. Uh, And finally, he also gives an update on what he sees happening at Lemonade. Adrian, it's great to see you again. Uh, We're here in in London, you're based in Paris. What brings you over to uh, the UK this time? Uh, the fact that you had one
0: day of sun this year, so I wanted to enjoy it, uh, and uh, I spent the evening of that uh, day of sun uh, at your event last night, actually. So, so it's good to check in on what people are doing uh, around these parts. Great. Well, you've had some pretty hot
1: weather in Paris, so I think you've now jinxed us because it's now a cloudy day in London again. But anyway... Let's talk a little bit about uh, you, and we're kind of very interested to hear what's been happening at uh, PNC Ventures. So, you started your, your career at Bain, you did about eight years there, you then then went to Renry, um, and then on to uh, school. Now, most people uh, don't start their careers planning to go into insurance unless they've got family members doing it. So, what was it that took you from Bain into Renry? So, I fell
0: into insurance like everybody does uh, when I had just come back from Sweden with Bain and i went into the staffing manager and they said uh, you need to get on a train go to princeton new jersey and ask for a gentleman at this particular address Uh, and if you know princeton you know what insurance company i would have been at Uh, and so i did that was my first consulting project in insurance Um, from there uh, i did a couple of other consulting projects and uh, eventually in 2010 decided it was time to go somewhere else uh, New York was a pretty miserable place uh, in the immediate post financial crisis world, and so I decided to go to Bermuda uh, and join Renry as head of strategy there. And, uh, six years there, uh, and I decided that uh, I had enough of a tropical island, so it was time for some foie gras and wine, uh, and ended up in Paris. Excellent.
1: So, I mean, we haven't really got time to talk about Renry and the Bermudan reinsurers now, but I mean, you know, you've, you've written yourself a lot about what's happening in the insurtech space and the disruptors, and to a certain extent, you know, those Bermudan companies, including Renry, were, in a way, some of the earliest disruptors in the uh, insurance space, you know, raising billions of dollars of capacity very quickly and, you know, taking, a, taking over the market from what was an established market in the US and, and Lloyds.
0: Yeah, and in fact, then continued to drive that disruption as third party capital came in. And those who, among the Bermudians, those who embraced the third party capital movement uh, ended up doing reasonably well, and they're still around, Uh, and those that did not are gone. Uh, And in fact, if you look back to the immediate class of 06, uh, something like 10 of the 16 major reinsurers at the time uh, have disappeared or have been acquired or are otherwise no longer independent companies. So reinsurance is a great example of a disruption that actually has happened uh, and you see the results. Only a few of the strongest companies survive.
1: Yeah, and I think you've written an article about that on LinkedIn as well, so if anybody wants to discover a bit more about uh, what Adrian's view is on that, then yeah, you can check it out. So then you went to SCORE in, in 2016 and a year later you set up PNC Ventures. Uh, was that something the company asked you to do or did you just see an opportunity and take on your initiative to set it up? So that was the early days of InsureTech, the word had only been coined
0: a year previously. Uh, And I saw a number of companies which were doing a lot of really interesting things and I said, we need to have a way of actually engaging with these companies. Uh, And so I said, I've seen how a ventures playbook works, it can work very well, Um, here's how we would do it uh, and put together the proposal to make it happen Uh, and uh, we did our first deal in 2017.
1: And how easy or difficult was it to convince the, uh, the management to, to set up? That? Because that's quite a big commitment to set up a separate investment fund for a reinsurer. It, it is and it isn't. Um, the
0: key is to do it in a, a slow, controlled manner. So we did not go out and set up a giant unit and hire a hundred people into it and um, you know try to take over the world we did it in a very slow controlled way where we said let's actually get in and just do a deal and see how it works and see if we have something here and once we did that and we discovered actually we have a service and some capital which is very beneficial to startups and we have a particular way of doing it which can work for us and for them uh, then it just made sense to keep doing it more and more and so I gradually sort of transitioned my job from uh, being head of strategy to running the ventures activity, and every day I was just spending more and more time on ventures, and, and that's really how it happened. So we didn't hire our first person into ventures full-time until earlier this year.
1: Good. Well, that's a classic case of somebody designing their own job, and clearly you must have been successful because then they gave you a full-time role running the, uh, one of the PNC ventures. Uh, Divisions. So, yeah, could you just talk a little bit about how uh, SCORE sort of reorganized themselves last year into three business units and the part you're looking after yourself?
0: Yeah, so we separated our insurance and our reinsurance businesses. They had previously been somewhat mixed. Um, so we now have uh, reinsurance, which is about 75% of our premium and specialty insurance, which includes our Lloyd Syndicate, our MGA business and our business solutions business. Um, which is about 25% altogether of, of our 7 billion euros premium for the division. Then you have a whole number of things which operate cross functionally, and they're not functions, they're actual business units. So um, a retrocession business, third party capital, uh, PNC ventures, underwriting management, alternative solutions, product development. Uh, all these sort of things were put under a group called PNC Partners, which is run by Sylvie Van Viette who's uh, been with the company for a very long time um, and so yeah we, we we are part of that because what we do and, and what's challenging about this job is the fact that we do operate across uh, the various businesses um, so that's what's challenging but it's also why there's an opportunity because uh, i believe that the magic happens when you combine knowledge and skills from multiple domains that's when you can do
1: really interesting innovative things Great, and then in, in terms of the objectives of the, the fund, you've written a, a very helpful LinkedIn article on this as well, uh, called "Building Insurance Futures Score PC Ventures Approach." Uh, but it'd be helpful just to get a high at a high level perspective. You know, wh- where where is the sort of focus for you between a fund that you're actually looking to see returns from your investments in a pure financial uh, way versus organizations that you see are going to be critical to or, or certainly very valuable to the growth of score both in what you're doing today but also into some of the emerging risks you'd like to underwrite.
0: Yeah, so that's the classic tension between strategic value and, and financial value. Uh, let me tell you about how we think about that. First of all, we are doing this ventures activity because we believe that we are building the insurers of the future. By so doing, we will also build the reinsurer of the future. The insurers of the future that we're building can operate in a couple of different ways. Um, One is we can simply back MGAs and carriers with uh, strategic capacity as well as investment dollars or pounds or euros. Um, Secondly, uh, we are looking for technologies which can help make SCORE a better underwriter. So we exist in the world of aggregated risk Um, There are some very unique challenges to that world, we're looking for solutions to those. And thirdly, we're looking for solutions for our existing clients and how we turn them into the insurers of the future. Uh, And so we're able to invest across all three of those theses. It's really the first one that we've been focused on so far, um, but this year we are broadening our focus towards the second and the third. and we found that with that, thir- that first thesis, which is providing both the investment dollars as well as the capital to uh, startup MGAs and carriers, we can align our interests it, both internally as well as with our client um, through balancing the two sides of that equation. So the challenge for a young company is always growth versus profitability. That's also the challenge for old companies as well. Um, but we've seen uh, you know, very different approaches in the startup world towards uh, that equation. If we are only a reinsurer, we only have the downside. Um, the maximum that we can benefit is the premium that we take in. Uh, If we are only an investor, we only have the upside, the maximum we can lose is the money that we put in. And if you combine those two risk distributions, you actually end up with a much better distribution. And it allows us to have a much better conversation with our client around their own challenge of growth versus profitability. And when, when you do that, that takes some of the tension off of strategic return versus financial return because we can actually take it on both sides or one or the other. Um, The strategic return is the uh, reinsurance that we're generating, uh, and the financial return is obvious. Um, We should be able to do both if we do it really well. And so having the relationship across the investment as well as the risk capacity means that we have every incentive to make that company as successful as possible on both sides of the equation, And, and it somewhat eliminates the tension which might otherwise exist.
1: Yes, yeah, so it sounds like you, you've, you've found a way to solve that problem that you know, many insurance companies have, and I think this is one of the reasons so many find it difficult to innovate, which is people tend to be judged largely on short-term returns, underwriters are uh, judged on or, or paid on their short-term underwriting profit. You've got a more long, you know, mix of presumably some short-term but more longer-term objectives in there. I guess it's sort of early days yet, but it, early indications on... Uh, how things are looking in terms of the companies you've, you've partnered with or invested in?
0: Uh, we're very pleased with the performance of all the companies that we've invested in and partnered with, uh, which is uh, seven or eight, depending on how you count right now. Um, but it is very early days uh, and we have to be patient. It takes three or four years before you see real results. Uh, anybody can go out and write a bunch of premium tomorrow uh, and then discover that it's actually bad premium. Um, so we want to be very patient with the companies that we're dealing with. Uh, my view is this is a little bit like a long tail line of business. It's, it's more like casualty than it is property. Uh, in, 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 but what I mean by that is it does take time before you see the real results. Um, and frankly, we don't know. Um, but we're, we're very pleased with how things are going so far.
1: Good. And you You tend to keep it pretty close to your chest about who it is you're investing with. You certainly don't announce it on your own website, and uh, certainly the the research I've done, I couldn't easily find out who you're investing with. Obviously, that's intentional. What is the reason for not to be willing to disclose who you're already involved with?
0: We don't necessarily feel the need to, to be honest. Um, We try to trade on our credibility and the, the offer that we bring, which I described a few minutes ago, uh, we don't necessarily trade on the fact that we were early investors in you know, ABC or XYZ company, which is, I find, how a lot of venture capitalists market themselves, and, and that's how they're known. I'd much rather be known as someone who uh, understands how the insurance business operates who can bring the capabilities of a global company like SCORE to benefit a a young startup operation and who can structure a very good long-term relationship with that company. Uh, If I'm known for those things, then it doesn't matter uh, anything else. Okay, and
1: you tend to invest Series A, Series B. I don't think you do much on the the sort of seed round of funding. The
0: definitions are fuzzy, but, uh, you know, we've probably done some late seed, you could say.
1: So, Adrian, we've talked a little bit about score here. Of uh, course, you yourself have got your own personal views, which may or may not you know, represent what the, the com- company views are. So, uh, it'd be you know, very interested to get some of what you're seeing out in the uh, in the landscape for insurtech and emerging risks. Um, so, as you look out there, the last few years, are there any companies? You know, and recognizing this is not anything to do with companies you may or may not have invested in. But companies that you've, you've seen that you feel have been successful and are good role models for anybody else wanting to understand what success looks like in, in the insure tech world?
0: Yeah, so thanks Matt. As we talk, this is just personal views at this point. So I operate primarily in the MGA and carrier space, or at least have so far in terms of our investments. I think that there is a lot in that space in part because uh, those are businesses which generate a a good recurring revenue stream uh, and actually generate underwriting profitability and if you know how to do that really well i think there's no better business model in this industry than doing that Um, so companies which have done that particularly well um, i'll give you one example but everybody needs to follow their own path here and and what's right for one company is not necessarily what's right for another Um, so one of the companies, which is disclosed uh, because uh, I'm on the board, uh, is a company called States Title. Title insurance company in the United States, which is uh, underwriting title based on uh, uh, artificial intelligence. They can deliver a curative free title commitment in a matter of two minutes rather than the typical two days to two weeks. Title is one of these lines of business which most people outside the US have never even heard of. Uh, It guarantees that when you buy land, you actually own the land that you think you own. It guarantees the title to that property. Um, States uh, started out as a carrier. They um, got proof of concept. They were able to demonstrate that uh, this new way of underwriting actually worked. And they then, said, well, what's the best way to scale this? And it turned out that the best way to scale it was to do an acquisition of an existing company, to get the infrastructure that would have taken years to build on their own, to get the licenses that would have taken years, to get the people. Uh, And so started looking at the list of what title companies were available uh, and found one and uh, actually made that acquisition in January of this year. So they went from being a, uh, you know, a very small startup operation to owning the number eight title insurance company in the course of two years uh, from founding to where they are now. I think that that is uh, an extraordinary accomplishment for them and for that team. I think it puts them on the map in the way that they wouldn't have been before, but it required betting the entire company on this acquisition and some extraordinary deal-making skills to actually uh, pull it off. Because how do you, as a a two-year-old venture-backed company, go out and acquire a big incumbent? Um, That's not easy to do. Uh, And so I, I think that people on the startup side need to be thinking really big about what they could potentially accomplish And I think people on the incumbent side need to think about, well, what's in our closet? Um, Meaning insurance companies are a collection of all sorts of different businesses, and we supposedly generate value from the diversification. But at some point you just decide, there are some things in here which don't work. Those are things which we ought to think really creatively around. How do we turn this into a business? Can we spin it out into its own separate business? Can we sell it to uh, a startup operator? Uh, is there somebody out there that has a better use for this asset than we do? And, and that was the case with the title company that got acquired. Um, and I, I think it's going to turn out to be a brilliant partnership um, between the seller and and States
1: Title as the buyer. No, that's very helpful, thanks. I mean, I think the essence of that is insurance ultimately is, un, is not unlike any other major technology marketplace where you need founders with vision, you know, the ability to scale ability to move very, very quickly. And I think it's partly the reason that a number of companies that started off two or three years ago when, as you said, sort of in the InsurTech uh, was coined, have struggled a little bit because they just don't have the ability to, or don't have the sort of vision and, and therefore linked to the ability to really scale and, and you yeah, know, take some really tough decisions, but move really quickly. And, and, and insurance companies generally struggle to work with those companies. That are, that, are, that are too small, that's. Um, and it's interesting that MGA, so technology link, up, I think we've seen more companies now where they are both MGAs and they've got technology and some some interesting ones are actually using their experience as MGAs to be able to also sell on some of their, their, their technology. Good, well, I just want to sort of talk about something else you're involved with, which is which is B3i, the, uh, the blockchain consortium. Uh, we had a lot of talk about blockchain last year. We know there are some activities going on at V3I. Uh, I'm not aware of anything that's very explicit just now that they're working on. Is there anything you can uh, reveal about what they're up to or sort of where the focus for the aspirations is for 2019?
0: Yes, yeah, so I, I joined the board at B 3 i when we did the um, latest fundraise uh, earlier this year. Um, B3i has been a little bit quieter than they were last year um, because they have been entirely focused on developing the uh, core initial product, which is a Cat XOL reinsurance uh, placement product. Uh, I've seen the initial version of the product, which is going to be released um, to the um, the people who are involved with it uh, in a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, It's an extraordinary product. Um, They have put a tremendous amount of effort into it, Uh, We recently had a hackathon um, in Zurich where a group of about forty insurers, reinsurers, and brokers uh, went through and tested the product, um, and sent more than a thousand messages back and forth, ran several different treaties through the product, Um, and you know, of course, there were some bugs, but they were all fixable. Uh, I think it's going to be a tremendous product. Uh, I think we're all very excited about it. Um, And then uh, you know, the, the company will be expanding beyond that, of course. I think there's one additional thing which needs to be said about B3i, Uh, although the B stands for blockchain, uh, the company is not a blockchain company. Uh, It was initially formed as a way for uh, a number of industry participants to explore blockchain technology and it is still using distributed ledger technology, which is of course very similar, uh, not exactly the same. But if you notice in the first press release announcing the funding, the word blockchain wasn't used. Uh, The point of B3i is not to be a blockchain company, it is to solve a really big industry problem which is the inefficiencies which we have in the transfer of risk across the value chain. Um, We believe that DLT could potentially be a solution, um, but what we're really focused on is how do we actually solve that problem. And in order to solve that problem, I believe that we need to have everyone in the industry involved in coming together um, for solutions to it. If every one of us just goes out and tries to solve it on our own, it will never be solved because the problem is the interface between uh, insurer, reinsurer, and broker. Uh, And therefore we have to have everyone involved in solving that. And that's why B3I having 17 insurers and reinsurers as its shareholders and its sole shareholders, Uh, I think is a very exciting initiative um, because their customers are their owners. Um, We're all here. We're waiting for this product to come out and, like I said, I I think it will be tremendous when it does.
1: No, in this space of sort of platforms for reinsurance and efficient exchange of information between insurers and reinsurers and and obviously working with the the reinsurance brokers, seems to be getting a lot more uh, attention this year and and, there's probably a dozen companies out there. Working in a space, yeah, ultimately, yeah, it's probably not going to be one single organisation that that owns that space. But I think it's intriguing to see how that plays out over over time. And uh, no, so great to hear that that's actually now going to uh, going to go to a a pilot study and I guess people will be able to get more visibility into that later on this year.
0: Can I just comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the product, um, which should be ready for live testing at 1.1, sorry, not live testing, but actually live, uh, you know, product going through it at 1:120. I think the product will be great. You're right that there are a whole number of initiatives which are out there, uh, initiatives, companies, uh, whatever, and the key is going to be that we design what we're doing in such a way that we can all work together. So all of the DLT initiatives in the industry are running on our three-quarter right now. Um, so there will at least be a common transaction engine underneath um, then we need to make sure that there's a common data definition layer above that and then people can build you know where they wish to build provided that it's all interoperable and I think ultimately there will be several solutions which will all need to come together and speak in a common language uh, in order to solve the problem
1: so, so it's part of the way of solving that that you're creating another ecosystem so b3i might you know, create the kind of main sort of, Platform, but you'll enable people coming in who might have uh, different ideas or just different options about how they do the the user interface, or or specialize in certain businesses and providing they they're built on R3 Corda and they they kind of use the same standards as what you're coming up with. Then you're kind of open to people building separate products, albeit you don't want to be going off and doing a different language in a different continent, in a different island, and the two can't talk to each other.
0: Yeah, the key is that they're interoperable, they're built on similar technology, and uh, ideally we don't have you know, multiple parties trying to solve the exact same part of a very big problem.
1: Good. Well, just moving on uh, to a sep- separate area, you and uh, Matteo Carboni, you've written a f- few articles now, I think, about the financial results of Lemonade. you had Metromile in there. You'd root again. I think these are written you know, as Adrian Jones as an individual rather than representing score. Uh, but yes, and yes, it's yes, very sort of thoughtful commentary in there about, I suppose, just reflecting some of the challenges and asking some pertinent questions about, you know, at what point does a startup no longer become a startup, uh, and at, at what point should you start to be looking at financial results that are actually commercially acceptable as opposed to it's just a, you know, initially it's a, it's a growth for revenue. Um, how do you think these companies are you know, doing now? It's, it's about a year ago, I think, since you uh, since you wrote these articles, but are you seeing continuation of a theme or, or anything else you want to comment on about you know, what you've seen since then?
0: Yeah, so we, we didn't publish for the first quarter of this year, but we did publish uh, on Matteo's page an annual uh, review last year. I, I think that if I comment again, just as my own personal opinions. Uh, I was very impressed by the uh, post that Lemonade put out uh, where they actually went into detail in their financial numbers for the first time uh, and said where they felt like they were doing well and where they weren't and why they felt like they were going to do better. This isn't to say that I agreed with everything that was in that post, um, but I felt like it was a much um, greater level of maturity than we've seen from most startups in terms of addressing the numbers because the numbers are publicly available and, and I think that people who study this industry should understand them uh, and be aware of them. Um, so I, I, was, I was very impressed with that. I think it will become harder and harder as you go along to take out each incremental point on the loss ratio. So you know we're not there yet, there's still a lot of hard work to do. Uh, and it gets harder as you go along, not easier. Um, but that said, I, I think that they have shown a, um, you know, a nice improvement from where they initially started out, uh, and I think that's really to be commended with, with more work to do.
1: Um, Good. So can we, can we look forward to the, uh, the next round of uh, reviews from you and Mateo at some point in the near future?
0: You know, a lot of people are looking at these numbers right now, and, and Mateo and I just need to decide how we would um, do it in a
1: manner which is differentiated and insightful now. Well, I know a lot of people comment on the last one, so I'm sure you've got a very receptive audience out there just uh, waiting for your, for your next opinion. Um, so just actually on that topic of, of articles, uh, we're talking now, you we bumped into each other at, at a few conferences, you came along to our Interstate London event last night. I mean, how, how, do you sort of, how do you balance all that time of being out there publicly, putting some full leadership out there, and then just doing the day job?
0: Well, your event was great because it's short and sweet. Uh, There are, what, seven, eight people uh, that spoke over the course of an hour, probably. Uh, And then, of course, you had the the one-minute pitches at the very end, um, which I find great because you you learn as much in one minute as you do in an hour sometimes. Um, You know, it's tough because I spend a lot of time on the road. Um, I've been, uh, in the last two months, to San Francisco twice, South Africa, Asia, Zurich, Milan, here, um, New York. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of time on the road. One of the things I do with conferences is I limit myself to one conference a quarter. Um, because otherwise you can spend all of your time at conferences and you end up not having the time to actually properly prepare and follow up. Uh, it's a lot of work to get the proper meeting scheduled and it's a lot of work to make sure that you're following up properly. Um, so I, I self-impose that limit. Um, but... Uh, you know, Yeah, it's not easy because we're a really small operation, uh, it's just a couple of us. Uh, and we're trying to support both SCORE internally and help to drive that internal culture change. Uh, and we're also trying to be as many places as we can in the world um, to make sure that we understand what's going on so that when, when things happen, we can make sure that we're at the forefront of them. I think what has been uh, a, a very positive surprise, and I'll put my score hat back on for a moment here, um, is we've been really supported by people in the organization much more than I expected. Uh, I've had several people come and sit down in front of my desk and say, Adrian, I'm really excited about what you're doing. T- please tell me, like, what can I do to support you? Um, And I've had several of those conversations, and I've had other people who'd who'd never have said that, but they've just started sending things our way. And so actually, we source a lot of our deals just because people are out there in the market, and they're known. And when they find these sort of things, they then uh, send them on to us, and, and we work with them to try to execute. Uh, so we spend very little time actually trying to proactively source ourselves. Um, so that's one area where we take out a significant chunk of, of time. Uh, we also don't need to fundraise, um, which is quite nice. So suddenly more than half of what the traditional VC does is gone from our day job. So that's a little bit of how we try to manage it.
1: Well, I mean, I've known school for, uh, for many years and always very much enjoyed working with people there. And of course, you also have the benefit now with uh, Jean-Paul Concenti, in his role of CEO for Scorey, as somebody who you know, comes at this from a, uh, yeah, a modeling background and John Paul and I knew each other 20 years ago in, uh, in, in catastrophe modeling so I mean I, I think just with that also that French heritage I've always felt it was a very strong analytical background but balanced with an ability to develop relationships and, and sort of Trade off between the pure analysis with you know, the intuition that is increasingly important as you get you get through your career and, and know what's going on. So, no, it's good to, good to hear that's coming from the inside as well. Uh, so, just you're know, talking about the team. Do you want do you want to talk a little bit about um, the, the colleagues you're working with here and at New York and in and Paris?
0: Yeah. So, the team is basically uh, myself as team leader. We have uh, a fellow here who's known to probably many listeners of your podcast uh, named Will Thorne. Um, who handles all of our EMEA ex French speaking markets uh, business for PNC Ventures? Uh, Pierre Favanek, whose title is Head of Strategy and Business Development, um, he's my successor in that role. He handles all of our French speaking markets. Uh, and then uh, I handle uh, primarily the Americas, uh, along with a fellow named Will Bird, who we hired out of one of the primary carriers uh, earlier this year. Um, and then between Will and me, we also cover uh, Asia as well. So, uh, we haven't yet had a chance to do anything in Asia, but um, we are looking for opportunities there. It's You know, Asia is not a monolith, it's a whole bunch of different countries ranging from the very big and uh, incredibly uh, uh, difficult like uh, India and China, to very mature markets like Japan and Australia, uh, and then some emerging markets like Vietnam and Indonesia and places like that. So. Uh, you know, we're looking to spend more time there and be more active there going forward as part of our geographic strategy.
1: Well, I mean, very impressive the coverage you get from you know, such a small team, albeit you've, you've got the, uh, the SCORE team in the background to you know, help you as well, but yeah, still, you've still done a lot with a very small group.
0: The one thing that I didn't mention, which I think is, is pretty relevant for people who are thinking about working with SCORE, is um, when we are looking to do an investment-stroke-strategic partnership. Uh, we have a single committee which makes all of those decisions. Uh, the committee has the final decision making authority. Um, everything that, we, that comes to us, we take to that committee so they see our entire pipeline and we select particular ones to talk about each time the committee meets. So therefore, we don't go through a long process of, of you know, working your way up the organization until eventually you reach some middle manager who says, no, I don't like that. Um, we do it through this committee and it enables us, I think, to make decisions much more quickly and, and hopefully more efficiently for the people that we work with. Um, because unfortunately, we can't work with 90-some percent of the people that, that approach us. But if we can tell them that very quickly and point them in the right direction, then uh, you know, we try to do that as well.
1: Adrian, thanks very much for, for carving some time out of what I know is a very busy schedule. Um, so if anybody wants to uh, learn a bit more about it, PNC Ventures or believe they've got a deal, you should, you should take a look at what's the best way for them to, uh, to, to find you.
0: Yeah, thanks, Matt. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today as well. Uh, you know, I've followed what you've done uh, in this space for a while, and I appreciate the uh, thoughtful commentary that you put out as well. Uh, in terms of working with PNC Ventures, the easiest way is simply to ping us a message on LinkedIn. Uh, we also have a PNC Ventures webpage on Score.com, which has an email address, PCVentures at Score.com. Um, yeah, just ping us that, uh, send us some materials. We pride ourselves on being able to, if it's not something that we're able to work with, we pride ourselves on being able to, um, you know, very quickly say that it's not. Uh, and if it is, then working efficiently in a centralized
1: and local manner towards getting some sort of resolution. Yeah, it was, it's been fascinating talking to you you've given some hints of things to come and, and look out for in the near future so yeah, perhaps we can get together again in a year's time and, and yeah, lots of interesting things will happen then we can, we can pick up, a, up on but thank you again and uh, hope the rest of your trip in London is a success and the sun is shining for you back in Paris when you get back, thank you <laughs> Thank you Matt So we covered a lot in our relatively short discussion. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about Adrian's views, I thoroughly recommend his articles, which can be accessed through LinkedIn. We'll reference a couple of the ones we talked about in the episode notes. Uh, You may also want to take a look at our other podcast episode for more in-depth interviews with other industry leaders, uh, as well as our lively discussions recorded live at the Steelyard for our Instec London evening events. If you'd like to join our community or even just curious about what we're up to take a look at www.instec.london. Maybe you too could be a feature guest at one of our events or on our podcasts.